Welcome back to the podcast. It has been a while, and I will be honest, I have missed you guys. I've missed doing this podcast. Why was I gone for so long? Well, there are a couple factors that go into that. First of all, I started a new semester of school. Second of all, I started a new job. And third of all, I've been working on this series that I've been planning for a little bit, and I've done a lot of research and a lot of, honestly, kind of introspection into this, figuring out if I could actually prove what I've been wanting to prove about how far back the roots of this conflict go, and I believe that I've gathered enough research to support my points. I hope you will agree. Now remember, this podcast is listener-supported, so if you want to keep this party train going, head over to anchor.fm, search up the podcast, Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. There is a button there that you can donate a couple dollars a month to. It will keep this podcast going, keep the conversation about history going, and... We will have a lot more stories to tell in the future. Thank you in advance. I love you all. And if you enjoy this podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop me a five-star review to let me know that you are liking what you are hearing. Gives me a little ego boost, and let's be honest, there's really nothing wrong with that. All right, I'll stop talking your ear off. Let's get this party started. It's October 16th, 1813. As a partly cloudy sky is brightened by the rising sun over Saxony, a large field surrounding the German city of Leipzig is crowded with two mammoth opposing armies. As the sun reaches its zenith in the sky, the final orders are sent to the commanders on the front lines, and soldiers hailing from seven different principalities, countries, and empires begin surrounding the city, where a formidable army made up of French, Italian, German, and Polish troops led by the general and emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte, were bunkered down. Shortly after, one of the largest and bloodiest battles of the 19th century commenced. For four long days, soldiers from both sides exchanged volley after volley of musket fire, peppered with cavalry charges and cannonballs hour after hour until finally, four days later, General Napoleon ordered his men to hastily retreat from the city across the White Elster River to the west of Leipzig. In the panic that followed, the coalition seeking to destroy Napoleon launched a deadly attack, adding to the pandemonium of the city streets. When Napoleon, seeing his plan of retreat quickly deteriorating, he ordered the bridge be demolished. After he and most of his men had reached the western banks of the river, he realized that the coalition forces had realized his plan and the city had fallen far more quickly than he had expected. Napoleon made a decision that would doom 30,000 of his men. Blow the bridge. As Napoleon took the tattered remnants of his army in a retreat all the way back to Paris, 30,000 men held Leipzig before every single one of them was either killed or captured following hours of intense urban combat. 
The Battle of Leipzig had ended in a disastrous defeat for French Emperor Napoleon, his first ever on such a scale, and was only the first in a series of military misfortunes that would follow, eventually leading to his ultimate demise at the Battle of Waterloo and his exile to the island of St. Helena, where he would spend the rest of his days pondering what went wrong. It was the end of the First French Empire, yes, but the conquests of Napoleon had much more far-reaching effects than he could ever have imagined. The human costs of the Battle of Leipzig had left a bad taste in the mouths of the native Germans, who suffered thousands of deaths at the hand of Napoleon's Grande Armée. Soon, when conditions were right, the bad taste would rise again, with the eruption of the Franco-Prussian War in the later 1800s and eventually be a reason for the fundamental distrust that led to the clash of France and Germany on the desolate battlefields of the Great War. This is the first in a multi-part series exploring the origins of World War I and World War II, the events of the two wars and what happened in between, and the fallout from the conflicts which continued as far as 1991, and arguably, the effects can still be felt today in January of 2021, 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union. The World Wars are complicated conflicts, to put it simply. With 16 countries contributing soldiers to the war effort in World War I, including the British Empire, which then consisted of Britain, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, India, and other colonies, and 30 countries battling it out in World War II, to say it was all caused by one event, such as the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo in June of 1914, or Hitler's invasion of Poland in September of 1939, would be statements that fall victim to a high degree of oversimplification. The wars were a result of over a century of tension on the European and Asian continents, and while it's impossible to get every single detail of these massive conflicts into one single short series of podcast episodes, we're going to do our best to highlight some events which are often forgotten. So where do we start? Well, World War I started in the Balkans, so is it the Balkan Wars in 1912 and 1913? Eh, uh, not quite. Gotta go a little bit further. The Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and 71? Nope, not yet. Further, we have to skip the Russo-Turkish War of the late 1800s, the First Sino-Japanese War, also in the late 1800s, past the Crimean War, even past the War of 1812, all the way to 1804, where we see the rise of the famous French Emperor Napoleon. Now, Napoleon rose to power from the ashes of the French Revolution, so it could be argued that the roots lie in the French Revolution, which would mean technically they could lie in a number of other events, but I believe we first see events that link directly to the Great War in World War II with Napoleon's meteoric rise to power. And so, to understand that rise to power, we've gotta go back. And bada bing, bada boom, it is revolutionary France. And it's a nasty time to be a Frenchman, there's no doubt about that. For over a decade, insurrection and war have ravaged France and the surrounding territories, such as Northern Italy and the disintegrating Holy Roman Empire in modern-day Germany. The public was weary of this constant instability and the never-ending warfare, so when this patriotic war hero guy comes along who'd trekked through the Italian Alps, beaten back an anti-democracy insurrection, and even crossed swords with Egyptian Mamelukes, and tells them he wants to consolidate the Republic and raise France to its highest degree of glory ever seen, the people are eager to get behind him. This guy's name was Napoleon Bonaparte, and in October of 1799, he orchestrated a coup that overthrew the government, drafted a new constitution in which most power was vested in a new position called the First Consul, and then made himself First Consul. 
Five years later, he dissolves the Republic and makes himself emperor of the first French empire. Wait a minute, one guy overthrew the government, established a Republic with himself at the head, and then dissolves the Republic to give himself absolute power, and no one tries to stop him? Well, yeah. And believe it or not, this is more common than you might think. This is a thread that we're going to see carry through these next few episodes as pivotal for understanding the events that take place. And call it kingdom, totalitarianism, fascism, dictatorship, monarchy, or any other form of autocracy, it's all essentially the same. One person controls the entire country and very few people have the power to do anything about it, because the majority of the population accepts it or even welcomes it. But why? Look at it this way. If you're in a group project with 10 people, and 8 of you are bickering over what direction to take the project, and one person comes along with, a di with an entirely different idea and says, We can do my idea, but we have to do it my way. No more fighting. If, hypothetically, you've been arguing for hours and gotten nothing accomplished, having an entirely new perspective introduced that would stop the fighting altogether becomes a little bit more appealing than making a two-sided war into a three-sided war. The French people were exhausted. Decades of squalor under a corrupt monarchy, then ten years of bloodshed and war during the reign of terror and the revolution, only to be back to square one, not knowing who they should bring to power, with a nation completely in shambles. Napoleon comes along and says he's going to fix it all, and make it even better than before. It doesn't seem like too bad of an option, we might as well give it a try, right? So... Now Napoleon was in power, and he spent his first two or three years in office consolidating it. He schmoozed the French elite and rallied a broken nation before on May 3rd, 1803, he invaded the small German principality of Hanover. The next year, he declared himself emperor, and the following year, Europe had its first real taste of the horrors of war at the Battle of Austerlitz, where Napoleon stunned Austria and Russia with a crushing victory despite the Russo-Austrian alliance fielding a third more men than the French. Austria was forced to hand over much of its southern and western imperial holdings to Napoleon, who took them graciously under his wing, and crafted the Confederation of the Rhine, a collection of western European states including the kingdoms of Saxony, Bavaria, Baden, Westphalia, and Württemberg, who were technically independent but pretty much under the thumb of France. Yes, this was conquest, and it freaked the rest of Europe out. In response to this expansion of power from France, Britain, Prussia, Russia, and Sweden met to form an alliance to take down Napoleon, but the Kingdom of Prussia, which consisted of much of northern Germany and almost all of Poland today, decided to act independently. Without the help of other nations, Prussia attacked Napoleon's new confederation in 1806, and Napoleon rushed to defend his new territory. Within 19 days, Napoleon had destroyed the Prussian army as an effective fighting force and, with one out of ten of them dead and three-fifths captured, he just marched to Berlin. Nineteen days. Alarmed, Russia and Sweden sent armies into Prussia to try to drive Napoleon out, but he made short work of them by using soldiers from his new territories in the Confederation of the Rhine to reinforce his lines. Russia was soon silenced and sued for peace. Swedish troops were driven out of Prussia. With the defeats of Austria, Russia, Prussia, and Sweden, Napoleon now controlled an empire of magnificent proportions, stretching eastward to engulf all of Poland, Austria, and Prussia. The French people couldn't believe it. Not ten years before, they were enduring the French Revolution, and today, they were the kings of Europe. But Napoleon wasn't done. 
Annoyed with the corruption of the Spanish monarchy, Napoleon sent troops into Spain and, within a year of defeating Russia, occupied Madrid. Within a year! Now, Spain was in his hands and his empire stretched from the west coast of Europe to the borders of Russia. In the meantime, he also allied himself with Italy and Denmark. Napoleon was unstoppable, but it was too much too fast. At this point, Napoleon falls prey to a classic set of blunders that comes about by empire building too quickly. In four years, he had conquered almost all of Europe. The people of Europe had whiplash. Their national identities had been compromised and their independence was quashed. It started in Spain. Barely a month after Napoleon took control of the country, the citizens of Madrid revolted. In what was emblazoned as Dos de Mayo, the 2nd of May uprising, hundreds of angry Spaniards rose up against the French occupation and the streets ran with blood. Within 24 hours, the uprising was crushed, but the French thought it wasn't enough, and for 24 hours following, they rounded up perpetrators of the uprising and other suspected insurrectionists and shot them in the streets. They wanted to send a clear message to the Spanish people. This action was immortalized in the painting The 3rd of May, 1808, by Spanish painter Francisco Goya. And as tales of the horrors of the event spread through Spain, the French attempts to quell unrest had the opposite effect. Uprisings began across the country, and the French had their hands full. The British, long awaiting their moment to strike, took notice of this and decided to make their move. With a French army in disarray across Spain, the British decided to declare war on France and landed 15,000 troops in neighboring Portugal. They wounded the French deeply in two consecutive battles, sending all French forces in Portugal and western Spain reeling. Then, another 15,000 British troops landed in Portugal, bolstering the British forces and doubling their fighting power. The French began a retreat across Spain, being pushed as far back as the French southern border. Napoleon had considered Spain to be taken and did not consider their fighting force to be much of a threat. Spoiler, they weren't. But he had not counted on the British taking sides with the Spanish. He had focused his armies elsewhere and was leading the French in battles further east. With the country all but lost, he diverted his attention back to Spain and decided to lead his forces back across the border and retake Spain once again. This he did swiftly, smashing the Spanish armies in four decisive battles, retaking Madrid and claiming the country for France once again. Then, the French moved back into the countryside, defeating the Spanish army again and again. The Spanish knew they couldn't face the French in open field warfare. There had to be another way. Here is where the Spanish adopt a new tactic. Guerrilla warfare. No, 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 not guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla warfare, not the animal, the action. Time for a definition. What is guerrilla warfare? Guerrilla warfare is a form of irregular warfare in which small groups of combatants, such as paramilitary personnel, armed civilians, or irregulars, use military tactics including ambushes, sabotage, raids, petty warfare, hit-and-run tactics, and mobility to fight a larger and less mobile traditional army. The term guerrilla is actually coined during Napoleon's war with the Spanish and Portuguese, as the Spanish term for war is gura. The French army was highly organized and well-trained, but well-trained for war on a large scale, not ambushes and raids. Instead of regular Spanish army, the French were suddenly up against potentially every Spanish citizen who owned a gun, hidden in forests and small towns, and it was a nightmare for them. To make matters worse, 
reinforced by more British forces and hungering for revenge, the Portuguese rallied their armies and launched attacks against the French near the border with Spain, where the French had found themselves once again on the retreat. Spain was just too big. Napoleon's plan was failing. Napoleon had once again left Spain and embarked on his infamous campaign into Russia with a 400,000-man-strong army, only to end in a crushing defeat, hobbling back to Paris with the tattered remnants of his Grande Armée. When news of his failure reached Spain, the Spanish, Portuguese, and British pounced. At the Battle of Vitoria, the British, marching with the vengeful Portuguese and the skeleton crew of the Spanish regular army, sent the French army in Spain running for the hills. After the defeat, the French army on attempted to rally on several occasions, only to be driven back across the French border. The British weren't finished with them yet. Along with the same Portuguese and Spanish who had put up with the French occupation for years, the British crossed the Pyrenees Mountains and advanced into France, tearing weary French armies limb from limb in battle after battle, only stopping when they received news that Paris has been captured. Wait, 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 the capture of Paris? Did we miss something? Well, yeah, there's a lot going on here. When, while we were talking about Spain and Portugal exacting their revenge on France, there was a lot of commotion in the East. A number of nations weren't too happy with the French, as France had annexed some, most, or all of almost every country in mainland Europe, and these disgruntled nations noticed that the French Empire seems to be crumbling. They were losing to the Spanish and the Portuguese in the West, and Napoleon was walking back from Russia with his tail between his legs, while they still weren't brave enough or strong enough to stand up to the mighty general on their own, what if they did it together? Coalitions were common in Europe at the time, but none such as what was about to come together. It started with Russia, Britain, and Sweden. A general state of war had existed between France and Britain for a while, with roots dating back almost a century, so when Britain saw the plight of Russia recuperating from a full-blown French invasion of proportions rarely seen in history, it offered to help. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Caught between these two nations, the Empire of Sweden had experienced its fair share of French incursions, as Napoleon had confiscated Sweden's holdings in Pomerania, a region on the northern coast of Germany and Poland. And yes, I had to look it up. Pomeranian dogs are descendants of a German breed called a Spitz. So yes, this is where Pomeranian dogs come from. When the Swedes saw Britain and Russia forming yet another alliance to take down Napoleon, they wanted a piece of the pie. Soon after, Prussia, who had been forcefully allied with France for years following their defeat in 1806 and Napoleon's capture of Berlin, decided that now was as good a time as any to stand up to Napoleon, and Prussian generals entered the alliance. Austria also formally left their alliance with France, though they weren't ready yet to declare war. And then... It all fell apart for Napoleon. Sweden, Britain, Russia, and Prussia launched attacks on all fronts. Napoleon was forced out of Spain in the west by the British and Spanish and lost his holdings in the east following joint attacks by Sweden, Russia, and Prussia. Seeing the success of the attacks, Austria signed their name into the coalition. Simultaneously, the non-Prussian yet German states of Mecklenburg and Bavaria also decided to defect from Napoleon's alliance system and join the coalition. In the south, the Italian states of Sicily and Sardinia, annoyed with Napoleon's nepotistic attitude toward governing their peninsula, also joined the coalition. Napoleon was now fighting a war on three fronts. Italy, Spain, 
and the entire eastern border of the once-terrifying French Empire. Napoleon was pushed back as far as Leipzig, a city in today's eastern Germany, back then part of a small country called Saxony, when he decided to take a stand. Rallying his remaining forces of Italian, German, and French troops, he garrisoned and fortified the city before drawing his battle lines and preparing for a battle that would change the future of Europe forever. On the 16th of October, 1813, that battle, which would be remembered as the Battle of Nations, began. Austria, Prussia, Russia, Sweden, and Mecklenburg fielded an army of over 250,000. Napoleon was only able to muster 177,000, but he held the city, which gave him an advantage. He had, after all, been up against worse odds before. For two days, the battle went back and forth, and for a moment, Napoleon thought he might drive the European army back once again, before an event occurred that can be considered one of the most dramatic battle stories in history. Disillusioned with Napoleon and holding no national loyalty to his empire, regiments of soldiers from the German states of Saxony and Württemberg, both members of the French Confederation of the Rhine, crossed battle lines in the night and stated that they would be joining the coalition. These two factions represented 40,000 of Napoleon's soldiers. His army now hopelessly outnumbered, Napoleon sent a plea to the monarchs of Austria, Prussia, and Russia, stating that if they were to back down now, he would sue for peace and would no longer attempt to conquer their lands. Unsurprisingly, all three of the monarchs declined, and the next day they launched a ferocious attack. Napoleon fled the field with his army across the river to the west of Leipzig, but not before abandoning 30,000 of his men to become prisoners of war or die fighting the enemies that he had made. As Napoleon fled to Paris with the shattered forces of his once great army and smoke settled over Leipzig, the human cost of the battle became apparent. In four days, potentially more than 100,000 soldiers were either dead, wounded, or missing, but Napoleon, Emperor of France, had suffered possibly the greatest defeat of his military career. Several months later, the coalition would invade France on all sides, ending with the taking of Paris and the abdication of Napoleon. He would be exiled to the island of Elba. As many of us know the rest of the story, here's a crash course for those who don't. Napoleon snuck away from Elba and came back to France while the coalition was distracted bickering about who got what from the war, to the delight of the French people who weren't thrilled about their once great nation being divided freely between their enemies, and he quickly rallied his armies only to find them feeble. Once he'd rallied an army of over 200,000 anticipating another invasion, the coalition was alerted to what he was doing and pretty much all of Europe declared war on him. We're talking not only former Confederation of the Rhine, Prussia, Sweden, Russia, Spain, Austria, and the Italian states, but now also Denmark, the Netherlands, and even Switzerland, and to top that off, Napoleon had accidentally started a civil war by retaking the throne and a faction of anti-Napoleonic French joined the coalition. Literally the entire continent of Europe wanted Napoleon's head in a basket. That's some French revolutionary humor for the rest of the nerds in the room. It wasn't a long war. Napoleon initially scored a few small victories against the larger coalition forces in true Napoleonic style. But as we all know, Napoleon's luck ran out at the Battle of Waterloo when he faced off with an army made up of British, Prussian, Dutch, and various German national troops, and he was routed. Napoleon would march his troops back to Paris in a fighting retreat where he would try to regain enough support for another army to be raised, but that would fail. Wait, it would fail? 
the French wouldn't give Napoleon another army after he had risen their country to the highest degree of glory it had ever been raised to before? Why now? Why, after ten years of conquest, only now did Napoleon's desire to raise an army fail? Well, in all his campaigns, Napoleon had become the first leader in history to practice total war. The idea being that all workings of a country were dedicated to a war effort. The French, after a decade of this, realized that war sucked. Too many deaths. Too much work. Not enough payoff. The first French empire was history. Grand Emperor Napoleon was a memory. It was over. Napoleon would once again be exiled, but this time, those who wanted him finished took no chances. They sent him to an island off the coast of Africa called St. Helena, where he would spend six more years wondering how he could have beaten the coalition at Leipzig, if leaving for Russia earlier in the year would have changed the story, how the Duke of Wellington outsmarted him at Waterloo, before passing away in 1821 at the age of 51. France would never again regain the glory of Napoleon's first French empire, despite their colonial efforts in the later 1800s and early 1900s. And that's the end. Tanner, will you stop it with the record scratches? Yes, I will. I'm sorry. That's the last one. I promise. But wait. Tanner, I listened to your trailer and thought you were going to talk about World War II and stuff. Why is our story ending in 1815? A hundred years before World War One? You know, that's a great question. And dear listener, allow me to offer an explanation. Three reasons this is important to cover. First... Napoleon was the first person in history to utilize the notion of total warfare. Previous to him, warfare was something soldiers fought on a distant battlefield, while life stayed pretty much the same on the home front. Because of this, he had the power to conquer or subjugate basically all of mainland Europe in less than 10 years, something no one had ever done before in that time frame. It didn't go unnoticed. Other nations began adopting similar methods of wartime economic policy, and from here on out, the casualties of war would only escalate. Second, in Napoleon's final crusade against European nations, he was opposed by an alliance of 22 European countries and states, seven of them German, unified in a common goal, defeat the Frenchmen. At no time in history had such a widespread alliance been formed with a single purpose. Post-1815, Europe saw what could be accomplished when they put their forces together and the importance of many military alliances became apparent in preserving the peace in Europe, as to never again allow one man or nation to control the continent. 3. The unity found in military alliances was felt most profoundly in the German states of the former Holy Roman Empire and the Confederation of the Rhine. After the Congress of Vienna in 1815, they were united in what was called the German Confederation, while they weren't necessarily a country, they were united in military might. In their short time as independent states and nations, these territories and their inhabitants had developed a bit of national identity. They all spoke the German language and its dialects, and they shared common cultures. They were educated in similar fashions, and they were now united as Germans. On the 1st of April, 1815, a baby boy was born in the Kingdom of Prussia, part of the German Confederation and he would be raised by a father who fought with the Prussians against Napoleon, and likely heard stories about the might of the unified Germans standing up to the tyranny of the French emperor. These stories would unite the fervor of German nationalism in the boy who would grow into a fearsome military powerhouse, and would call for the unification of German states to create a new European empire. 
This young boy's name was Otto von Bismarck, and he would one day be the self-anointed ruler of the German Empire. Thank you all for listening today to part one of this several part series of the Conflict of Nations where we investigate the greatest, most complicated series of events in human history, ranging from the Napoleonic Wars all the way to the end of the Cold War and beyond, and investigate why this all took place the way that it did, how it all fits together, and why it matters. Again, like I said at the beginning, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to the Apple Podcast page or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop a five-star review if you are able to do so. It really does help us get more people involved with the conversations about history. And like I said, the podcast is listener-supported. Feel free to donate if you so desire. I will catch you all next week with another episode where we cover the events of the Franco-Prussian War and the first tentative relations between Japan and China in the modern day. It's going to get really interesting. I will see you all next week.